welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. But this is the principle of the subtle moment. Al-Lahza al-Latifa. The subtle moment. And what's interesting about this principle is other than the fact that it's a principle that's not very common or uh, discussed, it's actually a principle that comes from all of the legal literature that we have that deals with slavery. And what's interesting about that is that because we don't have slavery anymore, and yet Islam has you know, many verses in the Quran and many hadith talk about slavery, the freeing of slaves, which is manumission, عتق الرقاب, we have a whole genre of literature, believe it or not, that talks about slavery, uh, how slaves are acquired, how slaves are freed. We have hadith, you know, all major books of hadith have sections on slavery. And I remember the first day, actually, I joined class at Al-Azhar, we were reading from the Muwatta of Imam Malik, which is a very famous hadith collection, and it was the book of slavery. That's the, it just happened to be the, the day that I studied, started, that was what we were discussing. And I remember, like within half an hour, saying to myself, this is the biggest waste of time. You know, I came all this way to learn about you know, something that's obsolete, you know, which is slavery. And the minute that thought appeared in my mind, the teacher, uh, usually the student would recite the hadith and the teacher would comment or the teacher would correct. The teacher would say, you know, somebody might think that this is the biggest waste of time and this is so obsolete. But the reason we need to study and preserve all of this because there's a philosophy in the law in the way that the legal uh, discussion about this topic has emerged that we can benefit from this in other sections, even if we don't have slavery today. 
So I thought as an introduction to this principle, I could just spend a couple minutes talking about the history of Islamic legislation vis-a-vis -vis slavery to, to underscore this point, why part of the tradition of Islam is that we study everything, even the things that might not be valid, even things that we have moved away from, even things that are no longer applicable. Uh, in the case of hadith studies, we even have books of hadith in which we have compiled all the forged hadith. And we have compiled all the people that lied in transmitting hadith. That's a whole sub-science of the science of hadith is to learn all of the false hadith. So we are a tradition that we've really preserved everything. And the reason is, is that if you don't take the whole tradition from A to Z, you will lose some aspects like this concept of the subtle moment, which we'll get into very momentarily. At the advent of Islam, you know, from the perspective of Islam, slavery was a very widespread practice, and there were about six major ways that you could acquire a slave. You could, at, that, at the time in antiquity, I'm not talking about in Islam, but at the time that Islam emerged, the world that Islam occupied, you know, the Arabian Peninsula, looking at Persia to the east and uh, the Roman Empire sort of to the north, Africa to the west, this is sort of what was standard at that time. You could kidnap people and by that way acquire a slave. You could enslave people by debt, so somebody can owe you so much money they can't re repay the debt, so they become your slave. You could sell your children into slavery. If you're a woman and your husband dies, then you can become inherited as a slave of you know, the, the husband's family or tribe and through warfare. Of those five categories, when the Prophet came and began his prophecy, the first four were outlawed. So you, it's haram to kidnap, it's haram to uh, enslave people because of debt, it's haram to sell your children because, into slavery. And there's no such thing as inheriting women or children after the death of somebody into slavery. And the only type of slavery that the Sharia allowed or conceptually entertained was what happens in warfare with prisoners of war. And the reason the fuqaha understand is that this was dealing uh, in likeness with other people. In other words, Muslims that were captured were enslaved. So therefore, Islam said, okay, well, if we capture them, then we, we have the right to enslave them. We have the right to enslave them, not that we have the right, not that it's obligatory, not that it's fard or it's wajib, but we have the right. In other words, it's a, like a deterrence. Because if that can happen to our people, then it should also be, happen to the other people. So somehow, or so, you know, people will think twice about attacking each other. So that's the idea behind it. But even still, it was the purview of the imam, the purview of the leader of the community, the political leader that is, to determine whether they were going to enslave or not. So at the end of the day, it's not, it wasn't something that was compulsory. At the same time, parallel to all of this, we have a huge literature about how slaves are freed. So the first thing that the Qur'an talks about, the manumission of slavery, as one of the greatest acts of devotion. You know, Allah says, you know, the freeing of a slave, the expiation for many crimes in uh, moral crimes in the Sharia is the expiation of the slave. Now we don't have that anymore, so that doesn't count for us. So we have to go to the next category, which is you know fasting two consecutive months, etc. But in the text of the Quran, Allah associates the manumission of slavery with a great, 
you know, devotional act. So it was an encouragement that people that wanted, that people that were wealthy, that had, you know, many slaves, which was common at the time, uh, as a sign that they wanted to, you know, turn the, uh, a new page with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the relationship with God, they would free their slaves. So it became like a moral encouragement to free slaves. It became part of the legislation that certain crimes, moral crimes, require the, the manumission of slaves. Uh, you can't uh, enslave family. You can't inherit slavery. Uh, if a slave woman becomes uh, pregnant, uh, what is called in the Sharia, Ummah Walad, then uh, by that act her son is free, and then when the master dies she is free. So all of these mechanisms, you know, even to the point, I remember one legal discussion we took, it was around that same period that I began with, that if a slave master, or sorry, if a slave owner, we don't use the word master, that's, that's the cultural creep, it's slave owner says to the slave you owe my son, because you know, out of endearment. And age-wise, the slave could technically be the son of the slave master. That pronouncement would be an irrevo irrevocable freeing of the slave. In other words, why? Because if, the, if you can't enslave your children, or you can't enslave your parents or your grandparents, you know, up and down, that's pro prohibited, prohibited. So if I say to my slave boy, who could be my son in age, oh, you're my son, the Sharia would take that prima facie off the meaning of that to say that he is your son and therefore he's free. I mean, you'll find rules like that throughout the book. So the freeing of slaves became something easy. You can accidentally fall into it. If you had slaves, it became a moral uh, goal. And the fuqaha understood from all of this that the Sharia wanted to do away with slavery altogether, which is why you know, in the, in, the, in the early part of the 1800s, when there was a, a global movement to free slaves, slavery, or to abolish slavery rather, and particularly after the civil war in this country, many of the international agreements outlawing slavery were signed initially by Muslim countries. And throughout the Muslim world, there were offices established in countries in which slavery was pro prominent. There were offices to help reintegrate slaves into society. And obviously that took a lot of time because if you grow up in slavery and that's all you know, and you, all of a sudden you become free, you know, what do I do now? So a lot of slaves, they didn't want to leave the house and you know, they kind of, it took a little bit of time for that to catch on. So why am I saying all of this? Because that's a lot of discussion that I just mentioned. That's a lot of thinking that the, for almost a thousand years or 800 years of legal thinking that the ulama spent specifically on this issue. So we don't want to throw it away. Not because we want slavery. Of course, we all think that slavery is grotesque universally. And in the name of Islam, we don't have slavery and all of that. But this principle that I'm about to discuss comes from this legal discussion. It's something that we use in other aspects of law. So what is the subtle moment that comes from the book or the chapters of slavery, legal discussion of slavery? And the theoretical discussion is as follows. A man goes to the slave market and acquires a slave. He pays money for the slave and now he acquires this property. He goes home and he realizes that this slave is his relative. Either a grandfather or a great-grandfather or uncle or a son or a grandchild. There's some kind of blood relation. So the theoretical discussion is what does the, the new owner of the slave do? Does the new owner return the slave because it's haram to own, you know, own your family in, in slavery as we mentioned? Therefore, 
that poor person will continue in slavery? Does he return him and receive his money? Or is he free? Or does he, is half of it right, half of it what happens? And this is where the ulama understood that there's this concept of the subtle moment. And they will say at a subtle moment, the transaction from the man buying the slave from the other slave owner is correct. So you don't have to pay him back. And at that same subtle moment, that person becomes free. Because it was apparent that they were, you know, could not be in slavery. So the Sharia bifurcates the way it looks at that transaction. And I know it's, it's theoretical, but a lot of these things come through in theoretical discussions. To say that we will honor the transaction, so you don't, don't return the person into slavery, because the, the Sharia wants to find a way for this person to be free. If the transaction was bad, you'd have to give back the property and get your money. So we'll keep that part correct. And at that subtle moment, at that instant, maybe we can use that word in the modern, modern English, the, the person becomes free. So we uphold the, the transaction on one hand, and then we uphold the, uh, the freedom on another hand. This is where it comes from. And the way we apply it is it can apply to financial transactions, it can apply to ownership, it, it can apply... Another simple example that maybe we can understand is any, any vinegar was originally some, some type of alcohol. Vinegar is just the natural progression of alcohol fermenting. In the Sharia, most of the schools say that alcohol, ethanol alcohol is ritually impure, is najis. In some process, processes, they want to add an additive to the wine or to the alcohol to speed up the process of it becoming vinegar. If I add like an apple or an agent into the wine to become vinegar, the moment that the wine turns into vinegar, using the same concept, that subtle moment, that apple is nedges, right? Because it's been in the alcohol, which most of the schools say is richly impure. But we said that vinegar is halal, we can have that. It's the natural purification of alcohol. But at that subtle moment that the wine turns into vinegar and it's pure, at that same subtle moment, the vinegar becomes richly impure because it had that foreign agent that was nedges. So this concept of the subtle moment is like a microscope on transactions and how the Sharia seeks to facilitate the ease of things. In the case of the slavery, it's the facilitate the ease of freedom. In the case of financial transactions, it might be a, a method to facilitate charitable contributions and awqaf. That's another application that we find, find of it. So it's important that we don't throw away the history. And at the same time, it's important that when we find a situation that seems difficult, we try to drill down and see if there's a way of solving it using this principle or any of the other principles we've discussed. So this is the story of the subtle moment. Wallahu a'ala.